Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. So I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries, your summer stories. Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real, your summer story series. Welcome to the fifth podcast in our series. Michelle de Kretzer is a two-time winner of the Miles Franklin Award and has won the Christine Steed Prize for fiction three times. Today, she'll be talking to Karen Eastwood about her latest novel, Scary Monsters. Hello, my name's Karen Eastwood, and today it's my great pleasure to be speaking with award-winning novelist Michelle de Kretzer, whose seven books include Questions of Travel and The Life to Come, which both won the Miles Franklin Literary Awards in 2013 and 2018, respectively. Today we'll be discussing Michelle's most recent publication, Scary Monsters. Thanks for Zooming in from Sydney to join me today, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. In doing some research for today's conversation, I was um, looking through various reviews and and interviews and podcasts and things, and I came across a Goodreads review by um, a, a reader, Rob O'Hearn, and he wrote of Scary Monsters that it's a novel born from the lockdown times. It speaks of social control, geographic inequality, and splintering community rifts. This book is a much-needed cautionary tale, a flawless mirror, and a moral medicine we should all take. That's huge uh, praise. What would you say in response to that? I would say thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) It covers everything. Do Do you think, I'm interested to know as well, how lockdown affected you and, and was this a product or partial product of, of your experience of lockdown? Only very partially. I mean, I was, I had started the novel before lockdown. Mm-hmm. So I started in 2019. I think lockdown, it was a product of lockdown, mostly in the very practical sense that being unable to go anywhere or do anything, mm-hmm. I finished it more quickly earlier than I had otherwise envisaged Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, lockdown is excellent for staying home and writing Mm -hmm. and it would have been hard to get a new novel going, I think, last year because all the uncertainty, um, especially around the start of the pandemic. But I was already part way through this novel, so... Mm -hmm. I was already, I already had that momentum going, so I could just concentrate and keep going. So I think that, uh, you know, uh, Rob's reading of um, of the novel is perhaps more a reflection of his experience of lockdown. Mm. And I think readers always bring their own experiences of uh, own experiences to reading and so in a sense every reader writes and rewrites book yes i think you're right yeah Um, which i love i mean i love that as a as a reader Mm -hmm. and i love thinking about it as a writer and i've already had readers like rob 
tell me things about this novel that I didn't realize were in there. Yes. Which is fantastic. That's yeah. really good. It, it, it's it's the magic really of books, isn't it? The people's interpretations and which, as you as you said, go beyond the author's expectation. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, it's the wonderful freedom of the of the reader. Mm-hmm. For sure, it's funny because um, as I read it, um, I was aware of that myself. The things that you you bring to it as a reader. I mean. With it being a novel of two halves, two novellas, they're both very different but equally powerful and effective styles of storytelling. Lily's in first person is very immediate, very real, full of the complexities of emotion and and sensory experiences of young Lily tutoring in the south of France in the early 80s. And this contrasts with the satire that's Lyle's story set in near future Melbourne, which is kind of a cold, scary Orwellian world that we observe rather than feel. And yet it's still full of very dry and dark humour, which reminded me of when I first discovered satire um, in English literature at high school and um, read, read Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall and The Loved One. And so that was a real, um, that was a joy to come back to reading satire. But as I read it, I kept thinking how much you must have enjoyed writing these two stories. They're very different, but each had such a, an enjoyable sense for me as a reader, but also imagining you as the writer. Can you share your writing experience and tell us how these two stories came about? Yes, sure. I mean, I enjoyed writing this book, mm-hmm. so I'm glad you enjoyed reading it. And I wonder whether some of that enjoyment that I felt in writing it has communicated itself. I think so, um, yeah. To readers. I mean, enjoy... Perhaps I should qualify that. I mean, I wrote about some very horrible things as well. For sure. But I felt very confident about what I wanted to do in this book, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Very certain about it. So Lily, working in the south of France in the 1980s, early 1980s, um, I wanted to write about a young woman who is a migrant to Australia but is now teaching in Europe. And uh, those um, feelings of, of anxiety but also of exuberance and joy and intensity and just sort of great silliness and fun yep, yep. that one knows in one's early 20s. I wanted to try and get that across in Lily's story hmm. while also... You know, I'm a writer who likes to play with um, form and and genre. And I also wanted to have hints of the thriller in that, Uh in half of the novel. And then with Lyle, I had in mind, you know, German expressionism and the way that that uses distortion and exaggeration, Mm -hmm. which produces, you know, proceeds by wit and horror to peel away surface reality to illuminate some uncomfortable truths that Mm. lie under the surface. So that was pleasurable in quite a different way. And in both of them, I felt I wanted to show migrants of color in rather different ways from the ways in which they usually appear in Australian literature. Yeah. Um, so there is Lily 
not in Australia at all, actually. She's moved on. She's moved to a different place, mm. the old world, Europe, which is, not a, which is not a standard setting for narratives about Asian migrants mm. in Australia. And with Lyle, I didn't want it to be a story of um, struggle. I want to show an Asian migrant who is very well established in Australia mm-hmm. and who has a, n- no kind of cultural conflict with, with Australia. He's taken on entirely in order to fit in, as he mm. believes, completely assimilationist values. Mm. So, you know, he fetishizes real estate and the acquisition yeah. of real estate. He is a ruthless individualist. He is an avid consumer. You know, he wants to be what he perceives as a real Australian. And I felt that in the values he chooses to embrace, that Lyle was was actually telling us what the unspoken values are that are promulgated these days by our leaders. Yes. Um, So not egalitarianism and mateship, but really this kind of advancement of the self, yep. of oneself and the family. Yeah. Once and you know, no sort of concern really for for the collective good. Yeah. So those are some of the kinds of things I was playing with in in the two um, halves of the novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And if I can just go back to actually something we were talking about before and the, um, about the reader creating the book. Mm. So one of the things I wanted to do with this novel, which is in a flip format, so, mm-hmm. you know, which you, you can choose which narrative to read first, Lily or Lyle, yep. but whichever one you do read first, when you get to the end of it, you've got to turn the book over and, and read from the other end. And I did that for various reasons, some to do with content, some to do with form. So when it came to subject matter, because this is a, a novel that centres, focuses on migrant voices, I wanted the reader to experience just very fleetingly and on a micro level a kind of bewilderment that comes when you move countries and change yeah. cultures and, you know, who changed the story? How do I make sense of what is going on now yes. you know, as I move into the future? So that was that. Also, I wanted to, as a writer, just play a little bit with the form of the novel. So, you know, this is my sixth novel. And I think that just repetition is not good for art. You know, you want to, as a writer, you want to keep taking risks. And so one of the things I've been thinking about uh, for some years now is this idea that we have of the novel as a single continuous narrative. And I thought, well, what if we turn that on its head? And we say, well, no, it can be, a novel can be a discontinuous narrative, a radically discontinuous narrative. Mm-hmm. So that a really stark contrast between two halves of this novel. So not just in setting, not just in time, but as you pointed out, in tone, in mode, one's mm. much more realist, one's much more satirical. The voices of the characters, because they're both told in the first person, so the voices yeah. of the narrators, I should say, are really different from each other, and they have mm. to be because Lily and Lyle are two 
very different people. Yeah. But how does the reader make sense of this as a whole? You know, that's the challenge, isn't it? So I provided what is a potential narrative link, and it's up to the reader to decide whether or not there is a sort of plot link between the two. But also what I hoped to have was, how could I put it? Something, not so much connections between the two, although there is the fact that they're both told by Asian migrants, but beyond that, not so much connections as something we might call correspondences or glimmerings, so that almost unconsciously, subconsciously perhaps, the reader would be making connections between the two halves of the story. Yep. Um, but not direct connections, you know, really more like glimmerings across from one to the other, gleamings, resonances, you know, like like objects that you might glimpse underwater. They're, it, it's not seen clearly, but it's, it's intuited. Yeah. Um, so really the reader does a lot of work in this novel of recreating the novel. Why not dip your toes into your summer stories from Newcastle Libraries? Simply visit the Library Lounge on the Newcastle Libraries app or the website newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. How important is the reference to Lily in Lyle's story? Because I know some, some readers have missed that. I've noticed that in reviews and thought, no, they don't see the connection. But not that they're, as you've said, it doesn't have to be uh, an explicit connection and it doesn't even have to be a connection, but there is, as you say, these overlaps or, or glimmerings, as you've beautifully put it, between the two. Yes, thank you. Well, I deliberately made the reference to someone called Lillian rather yes. than Lily. Yeah. Is that Lily? If it is, then it will change how you read Lily's story. Yeah. Because it, you know, obviously the outcome of her story is different in that case or the yes. final you know her life beyond the net beyond this this narrative so i wanted this to exist as an unsettling possibility in the reader's mind but really the reader will decide for themselves yeah is that is that lily is it not mm. and well the reader decides <laughs> exactly and that's the fun thing I was also thinking when I um was coming up with you know things I wanted to discuss with you and I was thinking about when you read this book or when you read a book of two halves it's not unlike going to dinner with a friend or a partner and um you know those situations where you go oh, I really want this and oh, I really want that why don't we get both let's get these two meals and we'll swap them halfway through and so, you know, you enjoy the meal, maybe you liked one dish over the other, or maybe the order in which you had the meals affected your your taste or your experience of the meals. So, um, yeah, um, I, I don't know what I was going to say for that. We each eat the half and swap. Yeah. Um, and about order, which is so interesting, because, of course, I think some readers begin with the Lyle narrative, some with Lily. And I think... Does it matter, really? It, it, it doesn't matter to me, no. but it's possible that your... I mean, I, I feel that your reading will be different. Your experience of the novel will be different depending on which one you start with. Yeah. And this is another thing that is related, again, to the subject matter and mm. to migration. 
Mm. Because at one point, quite early on, Lyle says something like, um, you know, that once, once you've migrated, the past is no longer a guide to the future. Yes. Because you, when you've moved to a new country, your way of perceiving the world and your way of being perceived in the world is no longer the same as it was before. So your way of understanding has to shift. And so no matter which narrative you read first, no matter which one is in the past for you, it won't necessarily be a guide to helping you negotiate the narrative that comes next, to making your way through the narrative world. So that was another way of reflecting migrant experience yeah, um, yeah. through the format. Yeah. Oh, it's very clever. I mean, and, and I don't mean that in a tokenistic sort of, oh, that's clever. But it just, the, it is such a multi-layered book. And the, well, the fact that there is so much conversation generated and there are no black and white answers, you know, there's this personal experience that we all bring to it, which mirrors the personal experience had by the characters in the books, the two stories, you know. And even even this conversation that we're having, I keep sort of shifting from which part of the, which half of the story, which half of the book do I want to focus on? Um, even as you've been answering, you start talking about Lily and I think, yes, I'll talk about that next. But then you bring up Lyle and no, that, that's another area or another, you know, theme that I want to cover so I mean it's 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 the sort of book there's the dream book for book clubs and um I would imagine for um you know schools universities I mean I don't want to sort of sort of sound like a hero worshiping but I just think it's a really fantastic novel in terms of how much you can cover how much you have covered and then how much that opens up for conversation so it's it's a juicy it's a juicy novel (laughs) thank you well you know I really like novels that treat me respectfully and assume an intelligent reader Mm. and um, I always had great faith in my readers Mm. and um, yeah so I hope that this novel reflects that. Yes yes and look you know I've been doing all this research and, and reading reviews and they're all very very satisfied so you'll be pleased to know that. Your summer stories are available anytime anywhere just download the Newcastle Libraries app and access your summer stories plus thousands just like them today. Let's get back to um, the title. I think Scary Monsters is a really, a really interesting choice of title because it's such a childlike expression and we comfort children and, and allay their fears by saying, oh, scary monsters aren't real. You know, scary monsters, it's not real. But your book is full of these scary monsters and, and they are very real. And, I mean, satire allows you to cover so many uh, of these scary monsters in Lyle's story from ageism, racism, Islamophobia, climate change, consumerism. What have I missed? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Probably covered it all. <laughs> exactly. And and then in Lily's story, one of the big scary monsters is misogyny. And I think it's been, it was it a really interesting time to choose to set her story with the 80s and that backdrop of the Yorkshire Ripper and then um, uh, the philosopher Louis Althusser having murdered his wife, um, Helene Rittman. I want to say that it was a different time and yet, you know, the more the notes I made on this, you know, a lot of women will identify with young Lily's desire to be 
you know, recognises the bold, intelligent woman making her place in the world and yet feeling this need to be invisible when it comes to her own safety or averting the unwanted attention of men. Um, every shadow, every parked car, entering her apartment building, you know, wanting to avoid an encounter with Rinaldi and, and his potential threat um, and, and all that fear that's real. And then also, sorry, just to continue, um, you page 88, I think it is, Lily references Simone de Beauvoir's uh, story of hitchhiking. And um, to quote it, it confirmed, de Beauvoir, it confirmed her belief that being alert and self-assured kept her safe. But that was an illusion, but a useful one. Years to later, she wrote, it supplied me with a touch of audacity which made life easier. So the reason why I say all this is that, you know, these experiences are familiar to, to most women and awareness of our safety and having to take responsibility for that and yet feel defiant, you know, why should I have to be scared? You know, I can run or, you know, like Lily, I can carry daring Audrey's gun. But nothing's really changed for us, has it? I mean, we haven't made this scary monster go away. Misogyny, no, but we haven't made any of the scary monsters go away, really. No. Although the end of Lily's story, it ends on a very hopeful note. Yes. Um, of, you know, real progressive change at the ballot box. And, yeah, I mean, you know, Lily as a young woman has, you know, needs to have this kind of confidence that she will be able to go on and achieve what she wants to achieve in life. Yes. It's also um, the um, misogyny that you talk about is, again, another thing that's kind of related to the form of the book because there is a lot of violence done to women in this book. You mm. know, one way or another, a lot of women end up dead or mutilated um, in some way. And so the the kind of the broken form of the novel, I hope, you know, is a reflection of that as well. There is kind of violence done to the novel as a form. Yes. So, you know, I was a bit of a scary monster perhaps in writing. (laughs) 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 I inflicted that on the novel. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's, um, but, you know, when a couple of readers have said to me that in a Lyle section uh, is, is bleak. It's a bleak future. My vision of Australia in the future is bleak. Well, sure, but it is also purely fictive. And what I would say and have said is that the end of Lily is a historical fact. Real change, good change, progressive change can be achieved through the ballot box. Mm. I think that's something to keep in mind as we move towards a general federal election. Absolutely. It's very much a story of our time, I would say. Create your own summer stories with Newcastle Libraries through our incredible collections, e-learning resources and summer programs. Find out more at the Newcastle Libraries app or website. Lyle's story, the satire against warning against our complacency and it's a call to question where we are at and where we're heading. I think that's so important. So much of of what happens in Lyle's story, you know, particularly in terms of climate change. I mean, they're using factor 105, um, uh, 102, whatever, um, you know, uh, meltdown of the air conditioning systems. um, And then, as you say, linking into um, ageism with the amendment. 
Which which kind of leads us nicely to Ivy because, as I said, I love Ivy. I think she's a great character. And um, with Ivy, I feel, and I'd like to to um, get your your input on this. Lyle's, Lyle's story is about needing to leave the past behind, and he lives in this superficial world based on his denial of his past. But he's 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 sort of walking this steady this tightrope, and it's a steady balance. But he's shaken by the events that happen throughout the novel in, on his half. And I love the way that Lyle is unnerved by Ivy, his mother. And it's physical, you know. There's this, as you describe, this pebble in his stomach, which becomes this rock on his tongue. And she serves to activate something in him, a distant memory or his sense of his own history. Can you talk about um, how the character of Ivy came about? How did she come about? I think I just wanted someone... Uh, to create a character who was very unlike Lyle, mm. someone who was not afraid of what other people think of her, mm-hmm. and who, you know, who, who hadn't let go of the past, who um, is is unafraid in a way. I mean, Lyle is a, a man who lives in fear. Yes. Really. Yes. And I think who serves to remind Lyle, as you pointed out, of his past. Mm. Um, and, you know, Ivy, I imagine that if I met Ivy in real life, I would, um, she would, she would be quite annoying as well. Yeah. You know, she's, she <laughs> is quite opinionated. Yeah. Um, and, but she serves the function in the book of, um, trying to remind Lyle of different values, of generosity, of connection to other people. Yeah. Um, which she might not succeed in doing, but, but she's there to try that. And I think one of the things that I, um, that one of the, the things that Ivy achieves in the book is to keep Lyle against his will, almost remembering scenes from his childhood or yes. from his past moments that have made him feel uncomfortable. Mm. And I suppose Ivy represents a kind of moral centre. Yeah, um, he's lost his moral compass. Reason, yeah, and that's one reason why she makes Lyle feel uncomfortable because mm. she reminds him that there are other ways of being which she has um, left behind. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And as for the ageism, well, I mean, you know, I, as I said, I started writing this book before the pandemic and I was just, as I grow older, I suppose, I'm increasingly aware of the creeping ageism in our society mm. with the ageing society. So, you know, I mean, calls for, um, you know, parents to, to whose children have left home to leave their houses and turn the money over to their children, for instance. Yeah rather than, you know, questioning the whole system of, you know, property and capitalism and so on, this is seen as a solution. You know, the olds get out the olds, make way for the young. Mm. And it, it disturbed me really because I felt that there were ways of writing about old people in society as if they were completely disposable and ways that would, would really not be acceptable if they were 
you know, if these comments were made about people of color or um, women or indigenous people, mm. but that the old could be written about with contempt. And then, of course, the pandemic began. And here, perhaps, is where, you know, that first reader, Rob O'Hearn, is um, seeing it as a pandemic book. Because what did we get in those first months of the pandemic? We had various commentators telling us that we shouldn't have lockdowns because COVID kills old people. Mm. Um, so, you know, people, it's, if the deaths are happening in nursing homes, we shouldn't care about that. As if the lives of the old are intrinsically unimportant and unvaluable. Mm -hmm. And you wonder whether these people have no one in their lives who, who is older, whom they they love and, and um, value. Uh, it's shocking. It's really shocking. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was expressed very starkly in those, um, in those opinion pieces that we mm. saw. And so, and I, yeah, so absolutely, I wanted to write about ageism um, as well as racism and misogyny. Um, and also, you know, times when even where those things kind of intersect. So, I mean, Lily is a character whom I think readers will empathise with, but there are times when she's talking to an old woman, for instance, that she, from the point of a 22-year-old, she just sees her as old. You know, yes. she has no further interest in her, not, you know, wondering who she is um, or what she might have achieved in her life. She's just, in Lily's young eyes, an old woman. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to write about those moments as well. Mm, mm, mm. I just want to talk to you very briefly again about Lily. There's a line that you've written that, that Lily says in her story after she and Nick have been talking about the de Beauvoir book, She Came to Stay. stay. It's on page 63, and it says, There was a quality to conversations I had when I was young that resists capture. Call it shimmer, call it spring. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's so true. You know, when we are that particular age, you know, early 20s, and we're so full of ideas and our sense of self, and yet we're still unsure of ourselves. But it's very exciting time where conversations are alive and this t testing and challenging of ideas and interacting with people through ideas and this newness. You've captured that in that one sentence, I think, really beautifully. And I wanted to ask you, because surely you've drawn on some um, personal experience in Lily's story. And I wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit to us about the art of combining memoir and fiction. It's a big one, but yeah. I would say so for Lily, I mean, I taught in a French high school in Montpellier at exactly the same time. Mm. So historical events obviously are the same, you know, mm -hmm. the Yorkshire Ripper or the, the attempted coup in Spain or... Yep the election of the socialist government in France at the, uh, in May 81. But I would say that even the, char the characters are made up. I, you know, I didn't know a Menal or a Nick or, or a Rinaldi or any of those people. They're completely, they're, they're inventions. Yes. I do um, remember feeling, go going because of this very annoying thing in Montpellier when the, the buses stopped running at you know, 8, 8.30 or something. So going to the cinema at night, and having to walk home a long way 
in the dark and feeling nervous about that. I remember that experience. You know, we've all known that, that experience yep. of walking home at night and jumping at shadows. So certain kinds of things I put directly in. And of course, just that whole experience, not just when I was in France, but in your early 20s of, as we were saying, you know, that exuberance, those intense friendships, um, those all-night conversations, drinking too much, um, being silly, being happy and silly together. You know, we all remember that. Yeah. But, you know, Lily is, I would say, smarter than I was, braver than I was, more politically aware than I was. So Lily is really, you know, not me either. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I guess, how do you combine those two things? You know, if I just wrote about what I did, it would not make a very interesting story. <laughs> there, would be, there would be no drama to it. So as a novelist, you're trying to, you know, stay, stay true to life, be plausible, be credible, mm. but also to create a compelling narrative. Yeah. So, so I had to give Lily all kinds of adventures and you know, have her meet people who, who I never met, invented um, characters. Of course, mm. yeah. Well, I could keep talking and asking lots of questions, but we actually have run out of time. Um, it's been such a lovely, lovely experience chatting with you, Michelle. And thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, your work and your, your thoughts on your book. And congratulations on writing such a fabulous novel. Oh, thank you so much. It's been just a delight talking to you. Thank you. No problem. Michelle de Kretzer, thank you for joining me, Karen Eastwood, on Newcastle Library's Your Summer Read. Thanks so much for listening to Your Summer Story series by Newcastle Libraries Real. Turn the page on our next podcast or go back to our original Your Summer Story season with authors like Trent Dalton, Craig Sylvie, Steve Conti, Tia Cooper and more. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real. Thanks for listening to Your Summer Stories from Newcastle Libraries. Why not take a dip in a sip, then rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real Production.